tonight is the third and final week in the series we've been doing on what's called the three marks or three characteristics of existence. It's a weighty title. So what I'd like to do tonight, uh, there are some people who've been here for part or all of it, but some people I see who are, um, have, I, I don't think have been here for it before, so I want to just take a minute or two just to say a few things uh, about, to recap, it'll be very brief, and then to pick up finishing with this topic and then uh, to end with a little discussion on how reflecting or insights into these three characteristics can be helpful and useful. Um, as we discuss them, it, it, you'll see that they can they can come across kind of negative or heavy or they're sort of difficult or pessimistic feeling. But the idea is actually quite the opposite. Can, and when seen in the way that they were taught and meant by the Buddha, there's actually a real liberating quality there that's available and we want to make sure we hold it in the right perspective. And actually I was thinking about at the end of the sit just a few minutes ago when I when ring, ringing the bell. And I know I've had set sits where you know it was maybe difficult or challenging. I was sleepy or my body hurt and I couldn't concentrate and I'd be I would be just thinking, you know, when's that bell going to ring? You know, come on, come on. And then finally and I was just struggling. And then we've all probably had some sits like that. Maybe some of you did tonight. And you know, then that bell rings. And you just, all, it, nothing's changed. You haven't moved. You haven't shifted posture. Nothing's changed. You just hear. And the mind just goes, ah. Nothing's changed. You just heard this. But that shift from being contracted and struggling to that ah and that relaxation. That's a letting go that happens in the mind. That change in uh, our entire experience, the shift, is strictly created in the mind. And it's a good thing to look at sometimes if you ever find yourself in that situation. It's a real good place, immediate place we can look to see how much we create our experience, how much we create our own suffering, how much we create our own happiness. These three characteristics are meant as tools to help us in that letting go. That's their whole purpose. Um, And they are aspects of any experience that on the one hand reveal themselves as we deepen in the meditation practice. We just see them more and more. But also we can rather than having them just arise and become known to us through the practice, we can actually actively investigate and look at these characteristics also. In the service of that letting go, so that in any experience we can find that ah place. And it's making that shift where we aren't so much only looking at having a particular experience or not having some other experience in order to be happy. And that shift, that ah, that letting go, is the place of finding that inner peace or happiness in the midst that's available to us in the midst of any experience. Now, practically speaking, if the experience is too strong, you know, if the pain is just too much, well, it might be too much for us, and then, you know, we'll all have our limits. But that's the direction that this is pointing us towards: is 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 the possibility of a freedom or a liberation that's not dependent upon, not so dependent upon having had things have to be any particular way. So we'll come back to that at the end. So just to recap, we talked about the first night how the Buddha talked about these two levels of reality. He would talk about ultimate and conventional reality. And it's just important to keep those in mind. The ultimate reality is kind of the the place that's, uh, it's really kind of beyond what we can talk about. It's beyond words. It's sort of, uh, it'd be the equivalent 
the way I say it is it's the equivalent of, of other religions that may speak about God. You know, Buddhism doesn't tend to talk like that, but it's the same kind of thing. And if you got into a lot of questions about, well, what's God? What's the nature of God? It gets into metaphysics. It gets into, uh, you know, there's not much you can say. It's beyond our direct knowing. That would be roughly equivalent to this idea of ultimate reality. And so all of what we're talking about here is then in the level of what's called the conventional reality. That's where these three characteristics apply. So in the realm of any experience. So the first night we were talking about the first of these characteristics, which is the Pali word, in case you're interested in these, is, is, is anicca, generally translated as impermanence or, or change. And that, 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 you know, there isn't anything that doesn't change ultimately, right? Nothing lasts forever is kind of what it's saying. We talked about that. I won't spend any more time on it tonight. And then we moved into the second characteristic, and we'll uh, say a little more tonight on that before moving to the third. And the second characteristic is the Pali word dukkha, which I think, you know, often you hear it translated as suffering, but for our purposes, a much better translation is... um, Actually, Gil, I was talking to Gil a few days ago, and he he had a really good word, I thought, which was unreliable. And just, and a lot of, and that unreliable aspect of any experience is coming out of or is closely connected with the first characteristic of change or impermanence. Because things do change, there is an, if, if we're banking on things being a certain way for our happiness, or our well-being, we have to acknowledge that there's an unreliable quality there to whatever it is we're looking to for that well-being. And we all do that. We, look, you know, we want our lives to be a certain way. Right? Everybody has some idea of what is a good life and what's a bad life. Right? And so when life is like that, that's great. But we all know life's uncertain or has an unreliable quality to it, the second aspect, dukkha. Maybe things will stay good, whatever our good is for a while. Maybe not. The point is, is that life's going to do what it's going to do despite our best efforts to keep it a certain way, right? I mean, it's just pretty obvious. We know that on some rational level, but that's not how we live our lives. And that's getting kind of the heart of the problems. You know, if someone were to say these things, I mean, these are kind of just very basic kind of statements to make, right? That things change. Well, gee, and nobody's going to argue with that. Or things are unre- have an unreliable potential, we'll say. But boy, we don't live our lives that way. How much of our time do we spend trying to, you know, set our lives up, head in a certain direction, create our lives to be how it's going to, how we want it to be. That's what we're all busy doing. That's okay. We're not going to stop doing that. Right? That doesn't make sense. Nobody's asking us to do that. But we want like to add in a piece. How much of our time do we spend learning to let go? Not much. I mean, I'm making a general statement, maybe some of us more than others, but I think it's pretty safe to say not much. It shouldn't be any wonder that we suffer. Right? So, looking into this second characteristic of of this unreliable quality of life, if we it goes too far, we're out of balance if we get depressed and we think I can't count on anything and what's the point and it's all just screwed up and it's all pain and suffering you can't count on anything we've gotten out of balance we've gone too far we're not using that teaching in the way that's helping us but when we just reflect and contemplate on these things then when life does change it allows us and and this is why it's a practice We're not necessarily good at being able to let go without developing and practicing. 
But as we engage in this Dharma practice, that ability naturally opens and opens and opens and we're more open, we're, we're, we're less constricted and contracted. We're less in an adversarial relationship with ourselves and the world. We're not fighting everything so much. And, it's, and life kind of um, presents itself in its own way. Even though we're still going to continue to want to make our lives work, that would be silly to not do that. We want to take care of ourselves. That's not what it's saying. But we're just adding in this piece of um, learning how to not cling. So, looking into and, and reflecting on impermanence and change, you know, we don't want to wait until we're on our deathbed to start to realize that things change or to, for the first time in life to realize that there's an unreliable quality. You know, it's a little late then to start cultivating some ability to be with things as they are with an open, loving, free heart. We need to practice, right? You know, I have thought, and this is kind of a joke, but I remember um, it was mentioned I was on a long retreat um, sitting for 11 months, and the thing, uh, there was many things that were very intense and powerful, um, but in addition to just deepening the concentration and the mindfulness and some of the meditative states, which can be, and I'm sure some people here who've done intensive retreats can also attest to this, can be very profound and very powerful, what's possible and very inspiring. But I think on some level what was even more powerful is, is that of course, you can always leave the retreat, but assuming you're going to stay, having it be such a long term, you know, you can't get out of it easily. You're forced to confront head on whatever's going on. And so over the course of time, you know, it's like anything. It's just like normal life. There's the ups and downs. Sometimes it's just fabulous and inspiring. The practice is going well. And, and you know, other times you're just depressed or your body hurts, or you can't concentrate, and, and it's, you're struggling. You know, and you're wondering what happened to that you know, incredible meditation that was just happening two hours earlier. Where'd it go? And it's all falling apart. And you learn that you can't make anything happen, really. You can set up the causes and conditions, meaning you keep working in a certain direction, the more you work on developing your mindfulness and your concentration, the more it will tend to be there. Just like in life, the more we do the things that take care of ourselves and set our lives in a certain direction, the more we will tend to go there. But things change. It doesn't last. And so it's not like something went wrong when the meditation fell apart. It just changed. And you learn that the deeper Dharma is not having some metaphysical, profound, meditative experience, the deeper dharma is actually in the letting go on a really profound, deep level. And finding that place where the heart and mind don't get jerked around by circumstances so much. And we keep saying over and over, it's a cliche about inner peace, inner happiness. When people talk about meditation, isn't it a thing that kind of gets said? Right? That's a, a fruit of meditation, right? Inner peace. Right? You'll just pick up any book from the, on meditation from the book bookstore. They'll probably say something like that. That possibility is actually not so far away. Words that are foreign to us like peace, happiness, contentment are in fact not so far away. It's within each of us. but we tend not to think about it unless it's times of crisis or extreme inspiration. Because we just get lost up in life. The possibility of happiness, or I'll use the word peace, is there even in the midst of difficult experiences. But you don't just start from that place. 
you know, that takes some development to get to a place where some real difficulty happens and um, because of the actual living experience in the moment is a connected with, with something deeper that we're not jerked around by it so much. We're just able to find our equanimity and our peace and then flow through life in that way. That's the potential but we need to reflect on the truth of impermanence and the truth on dukkha, the unreliable potential, I'll say, the potential unreliable nature of things. And then that's the, the, the doorway that it's trying to open for us, is into something not bad or negative or gloomy. So I just want to pause for a moment and... Um, we're going to move on to what's probably for most people the most challenging of the three characteristics, which is um, anatta, which is no self. That's the real not that's hard to get to wrap our minds around. But I hope we can take a little time and actually uh, loosen that knot a little. See, well, what the heck is that really talking about? So I just want to take a few moments because we need to spend some, uh, not too much, we need to spend time on not-self. Um, but um, just to see if anybody has, you know, maybe one or two either comments or questions or anything anybody wants to ask or say. I know about it is I don't really you know how someone is not disturbed by something I don't know how to you know how does one let go I don't know how you let go I mean we know that there is a thing of letting go we've all had experiences in times in our lives when we do let go but how does one do it because if we're not ready to let go or if we can't or if it's too much well then you can't let go and I think that's why it is a a practice, and it's, we want to take a long-term view of, of cultivating our ability. And then it seems to be something that, just like anything, we can cultivate in our ability to then be fully present with experiences can expand out on what we can encompass. But we also want to recognize that there is a, I call it, there's a line there somewhere. And if whatever the experience is crosses over the line, in other words, it's, it's beyond our capacity, then we just want to acknowledge, not say, well, we should be able to be present with that. I don't think that's what you're saying, but I just want to add this piece in. We, it's not saying, we don't want to get into judgment. Well, you, sh- you should let go. I don't think I would go so far as to say you should let go. Just in, the, in the sense that that's a loaded word, should. It gets a lot of judgments. And what we want to acknowledge is, hopefully, that Learning how to let go, I think, is a good idea. And we can experience for ourselves the peace and freedom that's available to us as we learn to to do that more, that non-clinging or non-identification. And if there's something going on and it's too much, so we're annoyed at at the sound, and it's not letting go, then that's what's actually happening. What's actually real in the moment is annoyance. So we need to back up a step and just be able to be present with that. Now can we let that be? And for the places, look, the places where we are able to let go, or not cling, I should say, those are places of freedom. And then for the place, and that's a place of wisdom, 
And for the places where we're not able to let go, then we just have to recognize that those are places where we're going to suffer. And that's where we need a lot of compassion. Really, really bring in the compassion. Not the judging and beating ourselves up, but to acknowledge, you know, this is a stuck place for me. This is a hard place for me. This is a difficult situation. And you know what? I'm suffering. And to really hold ourselves with a lot of kindness and compassion for the places we just all get stuck. You know? And then it's just, we do the best we can do. I don't know what else to say. Maybe somebody else might have some thoughts about that. I think, uh, I think you say this, there's a lot of benefit to understand the concept of impermanence. Probably is a concept that is not as paid attention to enough. However, at the same time, the permanence is also important in human life. Uh, maybe not in the long term, but certain amount of time permanence is important because organizations is based on permanence, contractual basis, uh, stability, reliability, expectations, clinging is all part of it where organizations uh, can be developed. So I think it's like a yin and yang. Uh, one, I think, uh, I must not forget that there is some benefit to creating permanence. Yes. And there's no question about that. Did everyone hear what he was saying about the benefit of, we were talking about impermanence, but the benefit of permanence and being able to, I mean, the wor- in order for the world to work, there has to be some structure, some things we can depend on. You know, we know when we drive, when we come to the stop sign and the light turns from red to green, we can go and we, we now, but it doesn't mean we don't still look because <laughs> there's no guarantee, but we need to have some agreements, right, on how things work. You know, and, the, and so, sure, there's, there are social constructs and there's institutions and expectations. And that's part of what, what's, of course, to make the world work. Even in, you know, if you go to Buddhist monasteries, there are a set of rules and expectations. And those don't change. And also. Right, absolutely. But we want to see those in the proper perspective. We, we want to also see the place for those things and the place for conventional reality. If we discard that, we're too out of balance. And yet we also want to acknowledge the limitations of those things and not look to them to provide more than they can provide. That's all we're saying. See for what they are. I think a good example is Ajahn Chah told the story of one of uh, a new person came to the monastery to ordain and was practicing and the wind came in a storm and blew the roof off his kuti, his little hut. And his, he just wanted to let go so much that he didn't repair the roof. And they had these little huts. And so when the rain or the sun would come on one side, he would move to the other side. And, came, and then Ajahn Chah told the story of when he came up and he said, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about here, you're, you're out of balance about it. And the guy was complaining, said, oh, you know, Long Poor, they called him Long Poor, Venerable Father. Oh, Long Poor, you know, I don't know what you want of me. I've even let go to this degree. And then Ajahn Chah said something about, well, why do you even bother to move over from one side to the other when the sun of the rain comes? Why don't you let go right there? And the point isn't to be foolish and not take care of ourselves. And Ajahn Chah went on to say, I talked to this guy for a long time. He goes, some people can just be this stupid. <laughs> and it's all about, you don't, it's just like saying, are we going to stop eating? Right? And if we don't pay attention to, say, the kind of foods we eat, well, some foods are going to tend to be healthier than others, or exercising, or having our jobs, or, you know, we're not going to stop paying our bills, and all of what it takes to make our lives work. So it's all about, you know, there's this middle path. We don't want to get out of balance. We want to see what is heading. Here's the, here's the key to everything. Whatever's going on, whether it's the external experience, if, whether it's something we're doing, something we're thinking or saying, or something that's happening, is it, leading to, is it creating and leading towards more suffering or less suffering? More freedom and happiness or less that's the test. Now, our minds don't always see clearly what it is, so we need some guideposts because it's easy to get fooled. But ultimately, 
That's another test we bring in. So if we let go to the point of saying, well, I've let go of all conventions, so I don't even use money, I won't pay bills. and Well, when the landlord kicks us out, oh, that led to more suffering. Not a good idea. <laughs> okay. Well, let me say something about the third characteristic then. And this will be interesting because we only got about half an hour and it's probably the thorniest. No self. I know some people have heard these teachings many times. Some people may be new to it. This is important to understand clearly what's being talked about. It doesn't mean that we don't exist. Right? We don't need the Buddha to tell us that whether we exist or not. We know we exist. We're here. Anybody not here? No. The question is, what are we? Who are we? And it's a question that's worth answering, asking and answering, because it's by not seeing clearly that we create a lot of suffering. What the Buddha's pointing to, and it's not just Buddhism, but other um, uh, contemplative traditions talk to, is that what we, when we don't look closely... We all know there's sort of a, I don't know what you say, a vague sense of self that we all have. Like if we don't really know. It's hard to get a handle on it. But you know, if I look into myself, I, there's something here. There's whatever I am. It turns out, and we can experience this directly from ourselves, that the closer we look, the harder it is to find any fixed me in here. This Richard in here that it's all happening to. We tend to have this fixed, constricted me that's separate from, from the rest of the world. And we protect it and we build walls and walls around the walls, right? The, the more solid that we think that sense, and I'm actually going to go into some detail here about in, in the ways that we it, that self may not be as solid and unchanging as, as first meets the eye when we don't look closely. But without going into that, you know, it's really a lot of work and, and it's painful to have to prop this self up to worry about it. I mean, think how much of our lives are spent judging whether we think we're either really great or not good enough, comparing the places we measure up, the places we fall short, the places that we like about ourselves, the places we hate, whether it's our minds, whether it's our bodies, whether it's our situations in life. It's a lot. What we worry about, if we're going to be okay, does someone like us, do they love us, how am I viewed, am I making the cut here? All the levels, that's a lot of suffering. And we spend a lot of our lives doing that. A lot. Isn't it true? It is true. Even when you meet someone that you don't know well, isn't it true? You know, you get to know people better and better but over time. But when you first meet someone, you don't have a clue who that person is because we all, to some degree, have that sort of that... Uh, I'm not sure how to say it, but it's kind of that outer self, that fake outer self that we present. It may not even be conscious, but the way we project how we want to be viewed and seen in the world, to be accepted, to be loved, to be okay. So when we meet, it's like, you know, um, I guess I'm sort of exaggerating to make the point, but, you know, my fake outer self is meeting your fake outer self. I mean, there's really nothing real going on there at all. And then over time, you know, when you can become more intimate and discover. You know, it takes time to really get down to what's real with people. Right? We don't tend, I'm making these broad generalizations, and some of these will hold more for some of us than others. But the point I'm making is, you know, propping all that up, it's a big, it's a big burden to carry around. Right? Having a self is actually a problem. So let's just take a look here. Start with the body. You know, 
we're all identified to some degree with the body. Whether we think we've got really great bodies or terrible bodies or we're too much this or not enough that or it's just right or whatever. You know, we don't like it when they're sick or old or dying and when they're healthy and beautiful and whatever, you know. So, we all have some level of identification with the body, but we can see pretty easily that, you know, I'll just put the question out there. Are you your body? Probably most of us would see, well, I don't think there could, you know, we don't want to get too often. You could spend a whole day just on that, really that, you know, I don't want to get into philosophical talk about are you your body? Because, but the point I'm trying to make is, I think most of us say, well, whether I'm my body, I, I certainly wouldn't exist without my body. So I've got to have a body, but my sense of who I am is, is something more than that. But in any case, we can certainly see that the body, there's no fixed, unchanging part to the body. Let's just put it that way. Whether you're your body or not, they say that it's something like, I think it's seven, over a period of seven years, there's, there's not a single atom or molecule or element that left from the seven years ago. You know, everything has changed out. Something like that. So given that that's true, well, there's no fixed anything. I mean, what, what here in this body, even though there's a, there is a continuity that happened, but there's nothing I can, not one single atom I can pull, you know, you know, there's not much I can point to here that was even there not many years ago. So it's, it's a, well, we can say that the body is, is impermanent. It's got that changing nature. There's no fixed, unchanging part to it. Let's just put it that way. It's always a change. Okay, let's see what else. Um, the, I'm using a particular model that in these Buddhist teachings are called the five aggregates. They deconstruct what it is to be a human being down into five parts as a way of doing this exercise. There may be other ways to, to slice it up too. But this is the, um, what else? So that's the body. Then the other four of this five model will be aspects of what we'll call the mind. I don't know what the mind is. You know, we use that word loosely, but we'll just use it loosely. Well, let's see what's in the mind. There's... Um, uh, there's all the thoughts and emotions and just all the stuff that comes up in the mind, right? Is that fixed and unchanging? No. It's just all, we always know that. You can be depressed and if some of you are really struggling with depression, this may not be a good example because maybe it doesn't tend to go away much, but you know, it's possible to be depressed and then later feel fine and happy. Or, you know, you can be feeling good and happy and then lonely or despair, you know, up and down. So those things are always changing. Our perceptions change, too. Perception is, uh, when I use perception, I'm meaning it in um, the way that, well, isn't a good example is, I'll just, this example some of you have seen, but I'll just hold this up and ask the question of, you know, well, just, you can just ask yourself, what do you see here? Holding this bell up. You know, it's a trick question. You can see it's coming, but you know, what do you see? Bowl, black bowl, bell, right? You don't see a bowl. There's no bowl here. I mean, I'm not saying I shouldn't say that. I don't know if there's a bowl here or not, but you don't see a bowl. You see color and shape. Colors and shape are coming in, and the mind sees this particular color and shape, and you know, oh, that's a bowl. It's all just sense input coming in and the mind organizes it and we need to, just like you were talking about, you need to be able to do this to function, to organize it. We don't even notice that that's happening. That's one of the ways we create our own reality, right? When you hear this, we know it's a bell because another function of perception is memory. I don't want to get off into this too much, but I'm just trying to make the point. But if you had never heard that before, you wouldn't say bell. It would just be some sound. 
right? We create that to be. Um, a good example of, of, of how that perception works is I've heard the story, Joseph Goldstein tells this, of some people who um, heard some, it sounded like a baby bird chirping down in the basement of their house. And they thought it was so wonderful and just beautiful. And every time they heard the chirp, it just made them happy. And then one day, um, somebody was, um, went down to do some work in the basement and came up and said, oh, you know, the battery needs replacing on your smoke alarm. It keeps chirping down there. But the mind just had made bird. Anyway, that's perception, right? Well, that changes. Perceptions change. Yeah, there's an example. from It's not fixed. Um, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of all experience changes, right? Things are not always pleasant or unpleasant. I'm going through this very quickly to save time, but basically if we sort of strip away all these parts that we think we are, about the only thing left that I haven't talked about here is actually awareness or consciousness itself. That's the one where most of us go, oh, well, that, that's, the, that's the me. That doesn't change. That just place that's just a deep aware place. Actually, that does change. Even in the English language, we have the word unconscious. Where's consciousness when you're unconscious? If you've ever had surgery, that's just incredible. It's like, you know, they, they give you this stuff and it's not like you're dreaming. I mean, you're just, it's like the switch is just turned off. <laughs> Where are you? Can't answer. It's like if you're in deep, sleep, dreamless sleep. Where, what are you? Where are you then? We could, once again, have a lot of speculation about where we are. But we don't actually know. Gone. Gone. So even consciousness changes. You know, you can be less conscious, more conscious, semi-conscious, unconscious. The point of all this is that most of what we take, so let's just bring it back now to the practical. We don't have to go too far into that exercise. The point of that exercise is wherever you look, there we exist, but what we are is a changing mass of ever-changing experiences, the body, thoughts, Consciousness, it's all just this changing, unfolding process. We are a river of being, if you will, is one way to think about it. We are just a constant changing. There's no unchanging self in here that it's happening to. We are this changing process. You're not going to really get it. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, there is an ex- it, it, can be, it can be revealed in, through the meditation practice. It starts to be seen more and more. The point of it is we don't have to go too crazy. You don't want to think about this too much. You don't want to get all stirred up about it. You could argue whether you even think it's true or not. That's all right. I would like to just suggest that a place where it might be useful for us to just engage in the um, just going through a process of mm, looking deeply to see who and what we are. What it really starts to reveal is that places that we start to cling, it all comes back to this letting go and non-clinging, the places we, get to, we start to cling start to loosen because, for example, take the body. If we're clinging on to the body to be a certain way, well, we know we're going to suffer, right? The body's going to get old, it's going to get sick, it's going to die. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way things are. If we make peace with that, if our happiness is not dependent on just having a young or you know, whatever you want your body to be, to the, then, then we suffer less. To the extent that we're identified with the body, we're going to suffer. There's no way around it that I can see. 
Ramana Maharshi, I think it was Ramana Maharshi said that Seeking happiness, I'm going to, seeking happiness while identifying with the body is like trying to cross a river on the back of a crocodile. A crocodile is not a good vehicle for crossing a river. Identifying with the body is not a good vehicle for achieving happiness. Ultimately, it doesn't mean we can't have moments of happiness, right? So, for example, if you're into, I'll just use an example, say you're into sports or athletic activities and you work hard and you train your body, it doesn't mean we don't get some satisfaction out of that. That's not what we're saying. It's getting back to what you had brought up about we can have that, enjoy it, and be involved in that, but we also want to recognize the limitations of it. That's all. We don't want to try to make it into more than it is and be aware that at some point, I used to be a, uh, I was a very active rock climber for many years when I was younger. I kind of lived to climb. I was a decent climber in my day. And I even thought back then, because you don't see that many older people climbing. It's real hard on your body. And it's hard, you know. Well, I thought back then, I'm not going to be like everyone else. I'm going to stay in shape. I'm going to keep it up. And I'm going to be up there. Well, you know what? Yeah. The body didn't ask me my opinion. It just went right ahead. It got older. You know, it started getting hurt more easily. It just doesn't really work so much anymore like it used to. And I like the way Ajahn Chah says it. He says when he was young, his legs used to carry him. And then he said, now he has to carry them. You know, the body is a burden that will become heavier and heavier of a burden for all of us. Once again... It's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. So by reflecting on that, loosening the identification, once again, it's bringing back, can we find that deeper place of happiness and peace with the the truth of how bodies are? And similarly for all the aspects of, of ourselves, to the extent we're identified, right, we can start get freed from getting freed from all those places of, gee, well, this is my personality. I'm such and such. You know, nobody would love me or like me. You know, that's a lot of suffering if that happens to be. That may not be an issue for everyone, but just as an example. I mean, I was, when I was younger, dealt with a lot of self-esteem issues. I can relate to those very well. It's very painful. And it took me a lot of years consciously working on that for it to, to loosen itself. You know, it took a long time. Well, it's very painful. Everything that we get caught in, I'm this, I'm that, is a setup. The Buddha said there were three styles of conceit. He used the word conceit. Very interesting. One was if we think we're better than others. That's the way we typically use the word conceit. Right? He also said if we think we're less than others, he called that conceit. And if we think we're equal to others, he called that conceit. I thought it was very interesting. It's the conceit of I am. When we come from that, we already are coming from the place of comparing of, of, of from the I am. Right? And I think he was trying to get us to step out of that whole way of acting and thinking and being more. So there's a lot more I can say about this no-self thing, but I want to stop for a second and just ask and see if anybody first either has any comments or maybe questions or is it confusing or... um, I'll just add one more thing and then then take it. If someone... uh, I would say... In my own experience, as far as I've been able to to dive in to try and find, to bump up against whatever, there's something going on in here, but you go down into it, I haven't been able to hit anything yet. Something's going on here. I mean, we are, we do exist, but it's, I can't find it. I haven't been able to find a self in there yet. There is a sense of self happening which is part of the process too.
But that's just, it's like a thought or an itch. It's just a sense. It's the experiences. There is experience happening, but there doesn't have to be anyone having the experience. That's good news. If you had a fixed self, that would be a big problem. Think what that's saying. A fixed, unchanging, no potential, no possibility, whatever you were, <laughs> that's it. But think about if there's no self, if, you're, if you want to use the word nothing, which is kind of a weird word. No, let's just deconstruct it. No thing, no fixed thing. The way it's useful to use that teaching is it opens the possibility to be anything. It starts to open the possibility of just the natural, open, free, and full expression of whoever what we are is now allowed to kind of open and, and just reveal itself. We don't have to uh, edit it or hold it back or think it's not okay. We just allow ourselves just to fully be and express in a real open-hearted way. That's where this is, the teaching's pointed to. Because we don't have anything that we've got to be or that we get identified with to be. We can just be whatever it is. It takes the whole judgment out, the whole place where we get in suffering around who it is we think we are. That's where this teaching's pointing. That's the idea of not clinging around it. Once again, it's not saying that, well, this is just me, so everything goes now. You just let it rip. It doesn't mean that we don't act in a skillful way. It's always within the bigger container of acting and being in a way that's leading towards more, less suffering and more happiness and freedom for ourselves and for others. We're just not focusing on that aspect of the teaching tonight, but that's kind of a given there. But within that, it's taking away the unhealthy part of, of, of our relationship with ourselves, the part where we get stuck or contracted, and it's that place that can kind of relax back and just let ourselves be. Not any fixed thing that we can't be or that we, or that we think we have to be. It's just a softening that's the whole thing. It's nothing more than that. So, any thoughts about that? Or? This is a tough one about no self. Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy for me to see that there's a lot of suffering from my clinging to self. You talked, spoke about letting go, and you spoke about self. So, I guess my question is, I guess, both a why and a how. Why, when I sort of accept that I'd be a lot better off without this clinging, I keep going, I keep clinging. Right. And more importantly, how might I uh, skillfully move right. in the direction of that? Yeah, what you're pointing to is actually one of the most important teachings in all of the Dharma teaching, which is the idea of conditioning or conditionality. And what it's saying is, is that that's a... It's like anything, it's a habit. It's a really deeply, deeply conditioned place in us. It's said for those you know, who, who go to full enlightenment, and some of you may not even relate to that idea of enlightenment or whatever, but the Buddha talked about those things. The last thing to go is the final sense of self. It's still the last thing to go. And to get to that point, you're already like pretty far along there. So we're not trying to get rid of anything. But um, look, we've all had moments of, act- of, of, selfless, of experience of, self- of selflessness when whatever was happening in the moment, we probably didn't even notice it. We weren't in a lot of aversion. We weren't in a lot of greed or clinging. We weren't in a lot of struggles. We were just kind of in the flow of life in those moments. We may not even notice it because it's just so ordinary. There was no struggles. There was no suffering. Everything's okay. We were just wasn't, weren't that self-conscious in the moment. The problem is when the right causes and conditions come in that hooks us right back, and there's many such things, that's all it takes and we're right back in caught. 
It's the conditioning or the habit of our minds. That's what is being worked on. It's like if you're trying to change any habit. So say, for example, you know, I don't know. Say you were someone who tended to be kind of a hot-tempered person and were quick to anger and you decided, okay, I'm going to work on that. And Well, you might start working on it, but the truth is, you know, it, it's still going to probably catch you. You know, just as soon as the whatever it is that triggers you off happens, doesn't take much, you'll be right back again and again. You, okay, you want to work on it again. I'm going to keep working on it. Keep working on it. Over time, maybe you get to a point where you still get caught, but you wake up quicker. Keep working and keep working. Over time, maybe you start to get caught. You kind of wake up. You still go there, but and over time, more and more, it's it, it, it's pull on you lessons. It's like any habit. In the beginning, it's hard, and over time, it, it just gets easier and easier. So it's, it's, it's doing two things. It's the whole Dharma practice is changing our conditioning and then ultimately freeing ourselves from, from the conditioning. So that's getting back to that place of unconditional happiness or unconditional peace, resting in the place that's not in reaction to things, where it's looking for a happiness in, in, a, in a different place. Now, whether we get to a place where we're completely beyond any effects from being in the world, I don't know if that may not even be something that that you want. Or I don't know what's ultimately possible, but certainly it's possible to get to place, and many people find in their practice that if you look back over a period of five years, ten years, take the longer view, people say, you know, things are better. I'm more easygoing. Life's better. I'm more open. I'm more peaceful. I'm... You know, it's gotten, it's better. That's the promise that's available. You don't even have to be thinking about enlightenment. Some of you may have that idea of, and the beauty of these Dharma teachings is, is that it works on that level if you want to, whatever enlightenment is. Or it works on the level also, and this isn't higher or lower or better or worse, it's just a different take of just making our lives better where we are less reactive and more open and more happy and free and free. That promise is not that far away and it's there for all of us. Right? So, I don't know. So. Yeah, Ruth. I wouldn't say it quite that way. I would tend to say it a different way. My own thing is, first of all, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying there's no self. Uh, the teaching is, is that there's no permanent, unchanging self. That 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 we exist, but you know if. It, and, and and the idea is that we don't have to get to something that we believe or anything. The whole point is is that we use these teachings just to look to see if there's a place where there's suffering. And usually if there's suffering, there's some kind of clinging going on. Right? Anybody not? Is everybody okay with that idea? What can help us um, kind of step out of that whole pattern of creating suffering? That's what this is all about. So we don't have to go to the grand, there's no self thing, but to start to look at places where we get identified with a contracted, fixed notion of who we are. And to start to let go around that, that's the practice. And what it really comes down to is 
is just allowing ourselves. It's 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 that place that that allows ourselves just to be. Without some fixed notion of what it is, some con- you know what I mean, saying, and then it just kind of opens and opens and opens and so on. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful, and that's great. So we don't have to go off into some... And I think what was unfortunate is, I, um, you know, we, on the first night we spent so much time on impermanence, which is probably pretty easy for us to get to, and it's spilled the second night, and now we've done about half an hour trying to really, you know, this is something you could spend like the day or a week, or really it's a lifetime about kind of wrapping our minds around this idea of no self, but we want to understand it, that it's just, it's all about... We don't have to, it's not there's this other thing of no self and when we get it we just go poof and it's not this nihilism or we disappear. It's just holding who and what, it's, it's, a, it's a path of self-discovery and the more we discover we're able just to hold ourselves more lightly. Absolutely no problem with no self. I, I, and I have um, no problem with impermanence and, and all the big concepts of Buddhism. But sometimes it just doesn't resonate in my life. I, sitting, I'm restless and anxious, I gotta get off, I, I get involved with my work or relationships and, and consumed by that. And there's like a distance from right. the, all the books I've read and all the teachings I've read yeah. and the reality I live. Yeah. So in that moment, that's what's going on. You're, and of course, we can all relate to that. Um, you're just unconsciously caught up in whatever is going on. In those moments, if you happen to be in a position, it could be the same experience. And just by bringing the mindful awareness right into it, that would already, if you don't remember to do it, and you're on an automatic then, of course, you can't do it. But I'm just saying if one could in that moment, the same experience would be there. But a lot of what you're just a, unconsciously identified with in the moment without even realizing it would already shift. You, you could actually know that whatever you just said, restlessness is, you could, is arising and passing away. You wouldn't be identified with it in the moment. Or whatever the thoughts were, the busyness could be seen mindfully. And already parts that you were unconsciously identified with would not be. You, can you, you see what I'm saying? If that were to happen in a moment. So that possi- that's why... As we develop our practice, what I have found, and, and some people, everybody's different in this, I have to say. For me, the sitting practice is so important. I find in the times when I don't tend to do much sitting practice, I tend to be more on automatic and lost and unconscious more of the time. And in the times when the sitting practice has, has been more steady and solid, I tend to naturally without trying, but just naturally be more present and awake and less caught in things. And I see that as something that continues to expand out so that it can even go beyond, it can go to whatever level we, we want to take it in our lives, what's useful for us, to the busyness and the, you just going back to that example, or, or agitation or all the thoughts and everything. And then, you know, there's a place where we see that and we know it. Mind, it's still happening. We're still acting, taking care of our business, but we see it more. We're not caught. And then it can go to more and more aspects of our experience. And that can just keep going on. And we don't have to make, we don't have to make a big deal about any of this. It's just, you know, really it comes down to bringing that mindful awareness to the best we can, moment by moment. Everything's covered. 
impermanence is revealed more and more. Because, you know, places where we're clinging or suffering are seen more and more. Right? Places where we get caught are seen more and more. The place where we, of identification as self, it just all starts to loosen and open it up. And somehow that inner freedom just is a more satisfying experience that just is there that can arise out of that. I don't know, for me, it, you know, it comes out of the practice. Yeah, yeah. Right. Look, we're going to have to end, but I'll just say this, that um, actually that's a good thing to end on. Um, There are, there's many practices, you know, um, I'm big on the sitting meditation practice and um, I've always been really big on it. It's not that I don't ever have, it doesn't ever fall apart or don't have times when it's, I don't want to do it. Um, there are people who, whose practices don't use that form. What's the woman's name up in Sonoma? I think it's Dr. Tin Tin, Burmese woman. She doesn't, her students, they don't sit. They're very serious about mindfulness practice. And it's not just saying, oh, mindfulness, my practice is mindfulness in daily life. But then they don't, you know, they're just lost all the time. They're taken as a serious practice. And I think for some people, they go quite deep that way. I don't know the forms that they use, but it's just mindfulness day life. For me, it just wouldn't work. For me, I got to sit. We all have to find our way that, that will work. I, and, and, and I would suggest that, um, you know, find support. I, you know, the sitting practice just has so much power if you're drawn to do it. And, um, you know, maybe there's opportunities to come here or if not, you know, you should let people know opportunities need to be created to support people because it's hard to keep up a sitting practice in daily life. It's hard to do. It's real hard, right? So um, anyway, well, um, it's already just past nine, about two minutes past. So I was hoping we could end kind of on an inspired note, but I don't know if that was accomplished tonight. I know that's a thorny, this not self thing is kind of thorny. Do you have something that we could talk about afterwards? I I could share something uh, out of my personal experience. I would say, please make it quick because I want to respect that we, you know, let people leave who need to leave. I think in general, when people live a life where they stay pretty much the same, like the shoemaker's son will become the shoemaker's. Uh, there's less chance of exploring uh, changes that uh, the more one changes their environment, say they move from one geographical location to another, they have more of an opportunity to experience uh, being a different person in a different place, different professions, different... Uh, so then you get to see impermanence more often because we, of course, we change. Yeah. All right. Well, for better or worse, we're going to end. <laughs> for some, it will be better, and for some, it will be worse. So what I would suggest is let's just take a moment and, um, I mean, really not even one minute, and just to, um, you don't have to get any fancy posture necessarily, but just to, if you have not been connected into your experience, bring your awareness back in. And just to see whatever's going on in the body, in the mind, whether it's difficult or not, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And to see, can you meet that experience, whatever it is, in this moment? And just hold it and allow it. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to change it. Bringing that non-clinging, that letting go, and that open-hearted acceptance right in, and that mindfulness right into this experience. And if there's something in your experience that is challenging or difficult or that you're not able to be present with, to notice that. 
not get into a judgment about it, but just to, to know that there's something that is hard and just to be aware of that. And it's that place of, of that it's really that radical self-acceptance which is such a great act of compassion for ourselves. And underneath all of these teachings, we all need a lot of compassion. We all are sufferers and we all need a lot of compassion. everyone.